0: Thank <laughs> you. It's Thursday, June 29th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that colleges and universities must stop considering race in admissions, thus ending affirmative action. There were two decisions. One was 6-3 in the usual way, or actually not usual as I have chronicled, but in the classic conservative versus liberal way. And then in another decision, this one involving Harvard, it was actually 6-2 since, uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson recused herself because she was affiliated with Harvard at that time. Anyway, there is a silver lining to all of this, I think, if what you want is something like equity, and I use the traditional, not newfangled definition of the word, flourishing, fairness for most people. UCLA offers some insights. The state of California offers some insights. They went through this. Texas went through this too. The two biggest states went through this and they had somewhat different results, but we can expect to see certain developments based on this very, very good sample size we have of what happens when you end affirmative action. So what happens is, or will be, the number and percentage of black students is going to fall at elite universities if there is no longer the opportunity to benefit from affirmative action, there will be fewer black students. That's why Harvard was fighting this. How much? Well, in California in 1996, the state banned affirmative action. Latino enrollment went down, but in the UC system as a whole, so maybe not Berkeley or UCLA, but the UC system as a whole, Latino enrollment soon doubled. Black enrollment in the system as a whole fell and recovered. Right now, black enrollment in the UC system is at 5%. Black residents make up less than 6% of California's population. But if you look at graduation rates, and a lot of these statistics come from a UCLA law professor named Sander, who critics uh, criticize, as, as the critics are wont to do but the statistics and the numbers, I check them out, they seem accurate. Before affirmative action, between 1992 and 1994, black students had a 13.5% four-year graduation rate. Now they publish graduation rates, university or system-wide, and overall, The six-year graduation rates of black students is 77% in the system. Now, I know we're comparing four-year rates to six-year rates. Found the four-year rate. It's 59, close to 60%. So it does seem that even if black students are going to institutions that are deemed not the elite institutions, they are graduating at a high rate. There is a theory called the mismatched hypothesis, which is a very pure version of this. Oh, we're not doing black students who can't perform at elite schools a favor by letting them in. But actually the data on that is not clear. But just looking at California, I think it's quite likely that what we'll see overall is not a huge blow to the overall flourishing of black students. We certainly will see fewer black students at places like Harvard and the Ivy League schools. We're also going to see progressive white students or students of all uh, races and ethnicities decrying the fact that there are fewer black students around them. But In terms of society and not just the wants and needs of the few students at elite universities, there is plenty of empirical evidence that this might not be the death knell that some of the more pessimistic prognosticators are predicting. On the show today... We didn't start the fire. Billy Joel did. Fallout Boy didn't. I'm going to try. But first, Brett Forrest is a national security correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the author of a new book about how and who the FBI recruits to do its dirty work abroad. His book is Lost Son, an American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret Wars. The story of how a young man named Billy Riley disappeared into Russia. Brett Forrest is up next. In 2015, a young man, 28 but, youthful, doe faced kind of a mama's boy, named Billy Riley traveled to Russia. It's kind of weird that he went there. His family didn't quite understand why he was going to Russia on the dawn of their first incursion into Ukraine. And you should know that Billy Riley had worked for the FBI for five years after 9-11, he just taught himself Arabic. And being a man of his age and somewhat skilled at chat rooms, he actually infiltrated jihadist chat rooms that the FBI couldn't get into. Now, Billy Riley wasn't an agent, he wasn't an employee, he was known as a confidential human source. But you add the fact that he did work for the FBI, that he did travel to Russia, and then that he did disappear, and it's weird and troubling and concerning. And soon, Billy's FBI handler, Tim Reinchez, began to cut off his interactions with the Riley family, seeking answers. In fact, began to essentially disavow knowledge of Billy Riley. What happened to Billy Riley? That is the story in Lost Son. An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret Wars. The author is The Wall Street Journal's Brett Forrest. Brett, welcome to The Gist.
1: Mike, great to be on here with you. Thank you.
0: So compliments on the book. It's a lot of things. It's a history lesson. It's a family drama. It's a memoir at times. But I really want to focus on the central propulsive force. Our main character, who was he? What were his motivations? What does our government owe him and what happened to him? So let's start there. As I indicated, Billy Riley taught himself Arabic and was interested in jihadist chat rooms. How did that come to the attention of the Bureau?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, Mike. I thank you for the the good introduction there. Uh, So Billy came of age after 9-11. That, I think, is one fundamental thing to understand about him. He was in high school when 9-11 happened, so a very impressionable age. And it really diverted the path of his life because he became interested in, in as you said, foreign languages. He also, in addition to Arabic, taught himself Russian to a certain degree. He uh, became interested in uh, global conflict, uh, world religions, and, um, and he was... He was coming of age just as the Internet was doing so and social media was developing. And, and all of these things dovetailed uh, perfectly and enabled him to reach out from his, his family home just outside Detroit to, uh, to people who were uh, fighting for causes and, uh, around the world and, and also people who were involved in terrorist conspiracy. And it was this Internet traffic that came to the attention of the FBI They came knocking at his door one day to to his his parents' home in in Michigan and uh, asked him what he was doing. And when he explained to them how skillfully he had penetrated certain areas digitally, uh, they were impressed. And they said, well, why don't you do it for us?
0: Mm. Were they concerned at first? Because I don't know if they know then, but as you lay out in the book, Billy Riley, you can perhaps tell by the name, Irish kid, went to Catholic school. But actually in school, he converted to Islam. So... To my original question, were they worried about this kid before they were intrigued by him? Yeah, well, well,
1: um, the nature of the work uh, for FBI counterterrorism agents means that they they must recruit people who are close to terrorist conspiracy or people who they can direct toward that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the 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 job of an FBI agent, a, a case agent, is is to develop information and intelligence that exists beyond the Bureau and bring it in so you need to do it through people like this The thing the thing about Billy that I think was um, was striking to the FBI was while he had this knowledge this lingual, linguistic knowledge this cultural knowledge and, and knowledge of uh, of What was happening in, happening in the Arab Spring how Isis was developing while he had all of these attributes he was he was you know, of European descent, born and raised in the United States, raised a Catholic. So he was quite unlike so many of the counterterrorism sources that the FBI was recruiting, especially in those years. And so he seemed, uh, I think, um, uh, more even more trustworthy than some of those others.
0: Now, a confidential human source, uh, many of us who follow the news have heard the phrase. You rightly point out some of the phrase is confusing. Human, of course, like why wouldn't they be human? But I'm not, this could mean a range of things. It could mean a person that they don't trust. It could mean a person that, you know, they keep at arm's length, but also on the payroll. In Billy's case, I think it meant, or Billy hoped that it would mean someone who might one day parlay his work for the FBI into full-term employment. But in reality, being a confidential human source kind of sullied one in the eyes of the FBI. And I'm not sure that Billy got that. And I get that impression from you. So I I guess you'd agree.
1: Yeah, no, Billy was naive about what awaited him in his relationship with the FBI, as are pretty much all confidential human sources, or at least most of them who sign up with the Bureau. I mean, the Bureau has uh, about a 200-page manual, the Confidential Human Source Policy Guide, which was meant to be uh, confidential but was leaked online a few years ago. And I, you know, I've read through this whole thing, and it's it's filled with not only rules and regulations, but but tips for how agents can identify, recruit, develop, and run CHSs. And um, I mean, make no mistake about it, the, the FBI, uh, is concerned primarily with two things. One is you know, keeping, keeping the country safe. I mean, that's its fundamental mission, but also keeping the Bureau safe. And, um, and, and folks that they recruit for CHS roles, they're, they're often nervous about what these CHSs will do, because some CHSs have been known to, um, to lie, you know, to lie to their yeah. handlers and, uh, and to get involved in the very crimes and conspiracies that they're supposed to prevent.
0: Yeah, well, let's not give the impression that the FBI is just doing all it can and working with uh, perhaps gray areas. The FBI recruits certain confidential human sources because they can break, if not the law, but maybe the law. They could bend regulations. They could do things that an FBI agent wouldn't be allowed to do. Exactly. So you have this little bit of this uh, monster on a leash, and then... When, i guess you could say well we can't work with him he's a monster you could hold him try to hold him at arms length but he is or the, often the confidential human sources are valued for the very characteristics that disqualifies them as you know upright citizens in the minds of the bureau
1: yeah exactly i mean uh, you you could say Quite simply, that these the CHSs often do the dirty work uh, for, for FBI agents, and now we've seen it throughout the FBI's history, pre nine eleven, that this was uh, this was uh, an area where they they overreached time and again, where they would. Uh, the, the famous uh, uh, example is the COINTEL pro- program, which um, necessitated rounds of uh, congressional hearings that resulted in uh, a lot of. Um, uh, chains, shackles being put on the FBI's usage of uh, cooperators and informants. But after 9 11, all those chains came off, and the FBI kept, started scooping up all kinds of people like Billy Riley that and they gave them very, very little training or instruction and began sending them out in the field to do things that the FBI agents sometimes couldn't.
0: Right. After the agencies and the intelligence community's failure in 9 11, they got a lot more leeway yep. to act. Um, Okay, Billy Riley seemed to be pretty good at the job he was tasked with. Um, You read his reports on, say, the Arab Spring. He got a lot of predictions right. A couple questions. How did you get the reports? And was he just doing this from his computer up there in Michigan?
1: Well, when I met the parents uh, in early 2018, I I went to Michigan and and, and visited them in their home. I I ended up getting to know them very, very well over the ensuing years. They They had been looking for their son for a couple of years. And they hadn't found anything. They had themselves had traveled to Russia looking for him and just couldn't come up with a coherent picture of things. So they, they felt like they had tried everything. So uh, when I encountered them, they were uh, very pleased at my interest. And they basically just gave me everything they had, including the hard drives on the computers that Billy had been using at home. And um, on those hard drives, I discovered thousands of files that he collected or created for his FBI handlers. And among those files were these reports that he was regularly uh, dispatching to them. He was putting them on Dropbox and his handlers were getting them, you know, on those folders, in those folders. And uh, yeah, a lot of these um, reports were just, I was quite impressed with how, with his depth of knowledge of uh, events in the Middle East and and how he was synthesizing the information. I mean, it sounded like, it sounded like he was working, you know, for an intelligence agency.
0: Yeah. So he was still... Uh, a young man. He was seeking, he was a searcher. He was seeking things like adventure, maybe romance, which comes into this. He had at least a flirtation and the plans to visit a woman, young woman he was maybe uh, flirting with, let's say, living in the Philippines. And he decides to go to Russia. He knows some Russian, not conversational Russian, which comes into play, but he could read it pretty well. And the question is, given all of What we've established, him working for the FBI, is there a connection of him going to Russia and the FBI, or maybe this is a CIA operation, wanting him to go, knowing that he's going, somehow supporting his decision to go to Russia? What do you find out?
1: Yeah, well, when I first learned of this case, this was one of the two fundamental questions. One was, where is he now? And what's the FBI's role in this? Or as you mentioned, possibly the role What is the possible role of another agency, a U.S. agency? Um, Now, the the parents, uh, the FBI, when they came to the parents' house directly after Billy's communications had dropped in Russia, the FBI professed ignorance of Billy's trip to Russia. But the parents, very soon after, they discovered uh, incontrovertible evidence that the FBI was lying to them, that the FBI, in fact, did have foreknowledge of the trip. And this really opened uh, a Pandora's box of of, uh, other questions, you know, because why, you know, there's usually a motive when someone lies. And there's certainly a motive when an agency like the FBI lies to a family in this situation. And we get into all this in the book, but, um, you know, it's an interesting uh, setup because you have a young man who's lusting for adventure and you have an agency that's fighting for its life.
0: Right. And you have... A mismatch between the trust the young man has for the agency, uh, the naivete of the young man and the agency, which really knows what it's doing and isn't too sympathetic or touchy feely when it comes to the sources that they, I'm going to use the verb, that they use.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, uh, there's not a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, emotion involved here. In fact, none. Uh you know, the, the thing is, the FBI's usage of sources and informants and all that really did change in a fundamental way after the whole Whitey Bulger affair in Boston, because that showed Whitey Bulger, who was the head of the Irish mob there and had been an FBI informant for years, he had upended the relationship with his FBI handlers and had actually involved them in criminal conspiracy, had uh, embarrassed the Bureau, had killed their careers, etc. So after that, the FBI basically told all of its agents... If you feel the slightest problem in your relationship with your sources, you have to dump the guy immediately. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what you're involved in, where he or she might be, just get rid of the guy. So um, that that uh, policy came into play when Billy went missing in Russia.
0: Yeah, just like you might put a sensitive document in a burn bag, do that for a person. Now, the question that I have about him going to Russia, what I really didn't understand was what he honestly thought was going to happen to him. Because let us remember, in 2015, Russia had invaded the Donbas region. They were claiming the successful when it came to Crimea, less so with each eastern Ukraine. They were claiming that country was part of Russia. This was the first incursion, a presage to the war that we see now. But Billy went on the side of the russians i mean he traveled to russia and he wound up in a camp where people were training to go fight alongside the russians fighting the ukrainians what explains that decision
1: well one of i mean several things could possibly explain it um one is that uh you know that billy was always interested at least as uh, from an adolescent and then into adulthood he was he was really interested in in mining for information that other people uh, couldn't find, for example, after nine eleven, everybody was uh, in this country. So many people were just were blaming Islam for uh, for the attacks. But Billy didn't didn't really accept that, and he dug more deeply, and he became much more knowledgeable than than your average American about it. The same thing was true with the conflict in Ukraine. But I fear that uh, that Billy became sort of beguiled by. Uh, some information that was coming out of the Kremlin that maybe wasn't true. I will also mm-hmm. say that that Billy never expressed an intention to take up arms against Ukraine. His um, his, his 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 goal seemed to be to document the war. Um, but then, of course, we have this uh, this overlay of his FBI affiliation because, as I mentioned, when he did go to Russia, he was a confidential human source, and he was discussing things with his handlers. So. That question uh, to a large degree remains open.
0: Yeah. Although, if the training camp for Russian mercenaries were an ISIS training camp, even going saying, oh, I'm not taking up arms, I'm just participating in their training, Uh, maybe I'll film some things uh, that they're doing, that would be, because ISIS is designated as a terrorist group, that would be a major felony that would get you decades in jail in the United States. Now, Russia didn't have that designation, but I just did want to put that out
1: there. No, you make uh, an interesting comparison and a worthwhile one. Um, But... um but, I, you know, and there have been cases, as we know, of course, of, of Americans or, you know, say, green card holders uh, uh, who have done just that, who have gone to terrorist training camps or who've joined uh, terror mm-hmm. groups. Um, but I would say that almost none of them were actually working for U.S. intelligence and law enforcement bodies at the time, which raised the question, um, you know, was he sent there? Was he sent? And, and as I mentioned in the book, Um, And this is probably surprising for your listeners. It would surprise me that FBI confidential human sources are routinely, though maybe not often, but are routinely shared with other intelligence and law enforcement bodies, including the CIA. Right. Now, the CIA, of course, would have a deep interest in knowing what was going on in Rostov on Don among the volunteer fighter community in Russia.
0: Right. Would they use a source like billy given everything that you found out about him and everything that the fbi came to conclude about him well that's
1: um a fascinating part of this story because uh this is one of those stories where you you feel like you you uh, understand something uh at sort of bedrock level. But then you discover some new information and it upturns your previous understanding and makes you look at it completely differently. And and on this point, uh, that was essentially what I experienced over and over uh, because I, looking from the outside, would, would evaluate Billy as someone you would never send into Russia, one of the most difficult right. environments for
0: a us operator um but does not speak russian i mean can communicate in writing but just has a smile and nod when russian is spoken yeah yeah
1: because he was just he was learning it on his own in the united states he did he was good with uh you know at the keyboard but when he went into real life he, he couldn't really converse and yeah you add that to the mix and you think well this guy how capable is he really and it would seem like pure folly for an agency to send him over there, and but setting that aside, you have to think: what could they actually expect to get from from sending him? However, however, you know, in talking to uh, some number of former FBI agents and CIA officers, I learned that uh, the CIA and other uh, intelligence law enforcement bodies that they do, in fact, send such people sometimes into challenging environments abroad, despite the fact that it doesn't seem to make much sense.
0: Yeah. Well without giving away what happened to Billy, uh, what you found out, the definitiveness of uh, his fate, you know, the parents, uh, you wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal, are still in anguish. He is a lost son. There are questions for the intelligence agencies to answer, certainly. If those answers are something like, yes, he was an asset, and we wantonly, wantonly put him in danger, that would lead us to one conclusion. If The answers are something like, yes he worked for the fbi for a while but he freelanced by going to russia by himself he essentially was in over his head naive and whether or not he worked for russia doing something he shouldn't have been doing not from a human level not from a sympathy for the riley's level but from say a united states foreign policy level how upset or aggrieved should we be that this person if it was, in fact, the case that he put himself in this situation, how worried or aggrieved we should be that, you know, bad things happened to him. Well, Billy, as you
1: mentioned, was 28 years old when he went to Russia, an adult and uh, responsible for the decisions that he made. He, yeah. he worked for the FBI for five years. At any time during those five years, he could have left the relationship, but he didn't. Right.
0: Well, I even mean in terms of foreign policy, he was on the wrong side. Maybe I. Maybe I'm looking at this through 2023 lens, although I remembered in 2015 really loathing Putin and thinking that he was doing the wrong thing. And Billy was not on the right side of that.
1: Right. Right. Um, uh, Yeah. I mean, again, this is one of those cases where you you, you turn it one way and it looks like one thing. You turn it another way and it looks completely different or at least looks a little bit different. Um, You know, you can never separate, I think. Billy's lust for adventure from his association with the FBI, uh, because we just don't know where the overlap is, or if there is one. Um, yeah. And and while it's true that he that he did did go to Russia during that time period in 2015, rather than say on the Ukrainian side, we don't know the true goal. And as I mentioned, he 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 didn't take up arms. You know, these are essential things not to forget. <laughs>
0: Brett Forrest is the author of Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret Wars. He is a national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And this might seem discordant with the seriousness of everything we said, but I should note that his bio contains this line. An article of Brett's about match fixing in international soccer served as the basis of an episode of The Simpsons. Wow!
1: Yeah, you've done it. That's all, that's the proudest moment of my career,
0: right there, Mike. <laughs> of course. Well, talk about lasting legacies. You could win a Pulitzer, but you inspired a Simpsons episode. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Brett. Thank you very much, Mike. And subscribers to Pesca Plus will get to hear an extended cut of our conversation, which we go beyond Billy's story and discuss the treatment of Americans used as bargaining chips by Russia. We're going to talk to Brett about his own detention by the Russians and the unexpected subset of fans who loved Lost Son. That is only for Pesca Plus subscribers. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. You could hear ad-free versions of the podcast and extended cuts of great interviews like this one. And now the spiel. The band Fallout Boy decided to rewrite and update the lyrics to the Billy Joel song We Didn't Start the Fire. In a way, it was a successful effort in that it started a conflagration of mockery online. Fallout Boy and Billy Joel I think are kind of similar acts in that they're beloved by fans, they're commercially successful, but they're somehow poo-pooed by critics. But this latest attempt by Peter Wentz and his bandmates should, if anything, underline the exquisite craftsmanship of Billy Joel as a lyricist and songwriter. So there are plenty of reasons to mock the new We Didn't Start the Fire. Let's listen to the first verse. You'll hear plenty. Captain Planet, Arab Spring, L.A. Riots, Rodney King. All right, Captain Planet was a PBS animated show which ran from 1990 to 1992. This is juxtaposed with the massive uprisings in the Arab world, which began in December of 2010. And then we returned to the L.A. Riots of 1992. So this is an important and crucial difference between the two songs, one I'll get to in more details in a moment. But the original, We Didn't Start the Fire Begins. Harry
1: Truman, Doris,
0: Harry Truman, unlike Captain Planet, is an extremely important historical figure. He also won the 1948 election. It was not just the first event for Billy Joel to list in his song. It was the first event in the song chronologically. He doesn't mash Harry Truman up next to the Cola Wars. Doris Day is a pretty important pop culture figure. Red China, a crucial geopolitical event. And Johnny Ray, you might forget him now, but to a guy like Billy Joel, he's an extremely important progenitor of the the very music that Billy Joel came to play Billy Joel's song starts with the important not the trivial he grabs you the rhymes are taught in the Fallout boy song we get these reaches oh, for rhymes Potter, Twilight, dies, Downey, oh my God it's so bad Michael Jackson dies. Michael Jackson. No, if you want to include Michael Jackson dying, it has to be at the end of the line. It has to go ba Michael Jackson dies. Right. That's the equivalent of South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, and then you can rhyme it with another ba Mandela wins Peace Prize. That'd work. The one, two, three, four part, you could stick the Unabomber in there, right? But 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 ba Unabomber. Mandela wins Peace Prize. All right, that's okay, right? No, it's not okay, and here's why. Not only are all the events listed in the Billy Joel song somewhat culturally relevant and with better rhymes than Fall Out Boy. All right, there's too much baseball in the Dodgers, but they're not just in vague chronological order. They're in nearly exact chronological order. And it's only... Less than perfectly exact, because some events don't really have a definitive date. So, communist block, You can float that around a little and use it to rhyme with something when you need a rhyme for rock around the clock. Djem <laughs> Bien Phu fell on May 7th, 1954. Rock Around the Clock was released May 20th, 1954. Next line's in Billy Joel. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team. Einstein died. April, 1955. James Dean died, September, 1955. Brooklyn Dodgers won the World Series, October, 1955. The whole song is like that, step-by-step, step, and no stretching syllables to fit the rhyme scheme, no breaking into like backwards dictionary reference guide entry language like Fallout Boy does when they say Bobbit John, or bombing Boston Marathon. I don't even get why you would rhyme those two things with each other. It's not like we have to torture one entry, Bobbit John, to get a clean rhyme with Saddam or Tehran, or manipulating the Huon. So Mike, the question is, do you think you can do better? Well, let me tell you, I like current events. I like rhymes. And like Billy Joel, I am from Long Island. Of course I could do better. First, in order to build momentum, I'm going to go in order. Second, no lazy, lazy rhymes. Three, you don't have to get to everything, which is good. I mean, Fallout Boy didn't get to Gorbachev, which is one of the, I don't know, four or five most important world figures in the last 30 years. You could skip them, except this was nuts. They reference Ever Given Suez, which pretty much rhymes with Gorbachev except for the fact that no one even know, what is ever given Suez? That was the boat, remember? That got stuck in the Suez Canal? No, you don't remember, my point exactly. So I'm not just going to do the Fallout Boy version of a grab bag of fun stuff to rhyme, right? Could be fun. Tailhook, Facebook, Sarah Snook. But Tailhook was 1991. Facebook came out in 2004. Sarah Snook, I mean, she's been around since whenever she's been around, but we became aware of her in the last couple of years. I'd love to. I'd love to end with, Forrest Gump, Donald Trump, I gotta go and take a dump. Great ending to indulgent. So I'm going to use some tricks like how the communist bloc floats around in years. I'm going to use intifada because there were two intifadas. One lasted from December 87 to 93, and the second intifada lasted from 2002 to 2000. 2005. So it's very tempting to go Intifada, Aldamada, Tom Parada, you know, the guy who wrote election, but I think I want to go Intifada, Bada Bing. Now those don't necessarily rhyme, but they do flow well together. And Billy Joel does this in his song. So I want to have Intifada, Bada Bing, like Billy Joel did Dylan Berlin or Buddy Holly Ben-Hur. Notice the BHBH parallelism. The guy's good. All right. So the thing is, the Intifada doesn't really line up <laughs> with the Bada Bing. So I wanted the Bada Bing in there. I concentrated on the year 1999. I got Euro, Bada Bing, NATO, Spurs first ring, Columbine, Kosovo, Chastain scores, winning goal. Right? Euro debuted in uh, January 1st of the year. The Sopranos debuted couple days later in January of 1999, NATO bombed Kosovo and the former Yugoslavia. The Spurs won their first championship, Columbine. April 1999, Kosovo, war going on. Brandi Chastain scored a winning goal. I think it's okay. Too many sports references. The Spurs actually won in June. I concentrated then. I went back in time. 1993. I got a little couplet going. NASA's Mars Observer lost, River Phoenix, Microsoft. Good stuff, right, sad, sad about River Phoenix. So I started and I ended with, and this is how hard it is. Arthur Ashe, Dateline Crash, Branch Davidians, Blind Chic, Don't Ask, Don't Speak, because you know, Bill Clinton, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but it wasn't Don't Ask, Don't Speak, it was Don't Ask, Don't Tell, so I couldn't rhyme that with the Blind Chic, the guy, the mastermind behind the first World Train Center bombing. So after working it over and over again and realizing this is not my full-time job, I'm just doing it as a, a dare or a thrilling little uh, excavation of lyricism, I came up with Arthur Ashe, Dateline Crash, Branch Davidians, Blind Chic, Dante's Peak, Jurassic Park, River Peaks, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, RGB Sworn In. It's good, except Dante's Peak came out in 1997. I needed something to rhyme with chic. I'm using it as a placeholder. And the river that peaked, I mean, there's a lot of floods. But yeah, the Mississippi peaked that year. See how hard it is? See how good Billy Joel is? I don't want to say, see how bad Fallout Boy is. I haven't thought of a Fallout Boy song in 15 years. I'm thinking about it now. But I think we should just call Joel a master and me but a novice. And also, really, The Cola Wars. It's, it's not the best ending. I, w- I, w- I think I would go with uh, Taking the Dump. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is Laugh Track for Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo. And thanks for listening. I think we should just call Joel a master and me but a novice.